Hello there. You are listening to the MCC Sunday Sermon. We are so glad you could join us. We pray that this message will encourage you, build your faith on your journey with God. Enjoy. Um, We have for the last two Sundays been teaching through a series called the Stewardship Series. And uh, if you're new to church and you're coming along thinking, you know, churches, all they ever do is talk about money. I promise you this is unusual, right? We take three Sundays in 52 to be able to talk about money, but we have been for the last couple of weeks and concluding today a series on finance and stewardship. And so throughout this uh, teaching series, we've been discovering God's principles that govern financial stewardship, tithing, blessing, and today we're looking at the myths that we have about money. Why do this series now? Well, there's a few good reasons for it. One of them is, is because I actually believe that our sermons and our Sundays should be able to apply to our everyday lives, right? A great service or a great sermon shouldn't just make sense on Sunday. It should make sense on Monday morning and Tuesday and and for the rest of the week as well. And so one of the reasons why we're doing this series now is because we want to be talking about things that actually apply to our everyday lives. And the Bible actually has a lot to say on the subject of finance and possessions. Secondly, because I want our church to have a strong biblical foundation for financial stewardship. I actually think that's a really important thing. Uh, Here's the third reason, because it's June. And June's a great time to be able to talk about money because it's end of financial year. Everybody is talking about money. There's not an advertisement that's not talking about money. There's not a news program. There's not the newspaper. Everybody's talking about money. If you're in business, right, this is like the month that everybody's talking about money. And so why not bring biblical wisdom to something that we're actually already talking about? Here's the fourth reason, and this one's important, because there's no offering coming up. Our Thanksgiving offering will be on the 5th of November. It's much later this year. And so as your pastor, it gives me the chance to be able to talk about this, but not to feel like you're only talking about money because next week we've got an offering. That's way further away. This gives us the chance to be able to talk about this because there's not an offering coming up. And here's the fifth one, and this one's true. I've found in my life, perhaps you've found it in your own as well, that if you can prove God's faithfulness in the area of finance, then you'll prove it in every other area of your life as well. Billy Graham said this, he said, if, you, if a person gets his attitude towards money straight, it'll help straighten out almost every other area in his life. Why? Because it's impossible to talk about money and not talk about our heart. Because few things reveal our heart quite like the way we handle our finance. And so if you can prove God's faithfulness in the area of finance, you'll find that you have faith to prove it in every other area as well. Uh, If you've missed the last couple of weeks, I would encourage you to jump onto the MCC Sunday Sermon Audio. It's on podcasts you get on Spotify or anywhere you get your podcasts. But I would encourage you to be able to do that and catch up. We spent week one in Matthew chapter 25 looking at a parable that Jesus tells about the parable of the talents. And we looked at the big idea of stewardship. In the parable, Jesus talks about stewardship at length, that that, that stewardship, the big idea is that everything you think you own is really on loan. That that stewardship reminds us that every good thing that comes into my life comes from God. Stewardship, of course, is broader than just finance. Stewardship is every good thing that finds its way into my life, my time, my talents, my opportunities, my relationships, but it also applies to my finances. And even in the example that Jesus uses in Matthew 25, it was finance that was placed into the hands of the servants. And so stewardship is the idea that everything I think I own is actually on loan. It existed before me and it'll also exist after me 
But, but I want to steward it in such a way that it brings glory to God as the giver. Right? James chapter 1, verse 17, that every good and perfect gift is from above. That every good and perfect thing that finds its way into my life actually comes as a result of God. And so I want to steward it well in a way that reminds me that, that I'm not the owner, I'm the steward. God's the owner, but, but I want to steward it in such a way that I bring glory to the one who gave it to me. And so it's important to remember that stewardship is everything I think I own is really on loan because it reminds me who my provider actually is. Last week, we, we looked at the big idea that, that in the big idea of stewardship, God places a principle called the tithe. In a much larger idea, God places this principle of the tithe as a test of my heart to see if I will acknowledge that every good thing comes, that comes into my life comes from him. And so God gives me a test to be able to return 10% to him as a reminder to my heart. And so we believe in the principle of stewardship, but we also believe in the principle of tithing, which is about returning the first tenth of our increase into the local storehouse, into the local church. And so the tithe is for our benefit to keep our heart right about who we honor first in our life? God. About where our increase comes from. It comes from God. About who our provider is. It's God. And so it's a habit that keeps money out of my heart by reminding me who it actually belongs to. And so we looked at last week six things. That the tithe is a tenth. The tithe isn't just any tenth, but it's the first tenth that leaves my hand. That the tithe is a test of my heart to see who I'll honor first. That the tithe is brought and not given. That it actually doesn't belong to me. It's not so much that I'm giving God 10%, it's that I'm returning 10% to God and he's allowing me to keep the 90 since all of it actually belongs to him. And so it's a test of my heart. Fourthly, that the tithe is brought and not given. That actually the tithe belongs to God. So much so that God says, will you even rob me, right? Because it belongs to me. So, so I don't want the tithe in my house. No, no, I want the tithe in God's house because it belongs to him. Yeah. Fifthly, we looked at the fact that the tithe is a principle before and beyond the Old Testament law. And lastly, we looked at the fact that the tithe comes with a promise. That God says that, that, that if you'll honor me in this way, if you'll return the first tenth to me, then I'll cause the 90% that remains in your hand to go further than if you'd held on to the whole amount. That God says, I'll, I'll cause blessing to come upon your life, so much so you won't have room for it. In fact, I'll make sure that your fruit on the vine, it doesn't wither, it doesn't fade, it doesn't fall. God says, I'll rebuke the devourer on your behalf, right? Because if you honor me in this way, God says, you can test me. It's the only area that God says you can do that. But God says, test me in this and see if I will not prove myself faithful in your life if you'll honor me by placing me first. And so we looked at that last week, the principle of the tithe and this bigger idea of stewardship. And if you weren't here, I want to say this again, but because we've obviously just mentioned again, but, but I want to say this because it's important for us to hear it, that, that whether you choose to give or not, whether you choose to tithe or not at MCC is actually a matter between you and God. And I'd really encourage that to be something that you pray about. But it's a matter between you and God. But here's the other thing, whether you choose to give or not at MCC, actually won't change the way that you pass it here. And part of the reason for that is because our pastors don't know, right? And so it's important that you hear that. Which brings us to this week, the final installment for this stewardship series. We're looking at commonly believed myths about money. This is not an exhaustive list because there could be lots of myths that we have, but maybe just a few key commonly held myths 
about money. So we're going to jump straight into the very first one. Myth number one, money is the root of all evil. Ever heard that myth? Perhaps ever believed that myth? That money is the root of all evil. Maybe you've heard someone say that. Maybe you've heard someone misquote 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10. Here's what the Bible actually says. The Bible doesn't say that money is the root of all evil, but what the Bible does say is for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's true. That the money itself is not evil. Money itself is neutral. Money is neither good nor bad, but what the Bible does say, not that money is the root of all evil, but the love of money, right, leads to all different kinds of evil. That that money is neither good nor bad. Money brings influence. Money is means. But but money itself is neutral. It's neither good nor bad. It can be used for incredible good. And money can also be used for incredible bad. But that's not money. That's whose hands it resides inside of. It's not money that's evil. But the love of money, that's a problem. When money starts to move into your heart, that's a really dangerous place for money to reside. When you love money more than you love people, When you love money more than you love people, that leads to all different kinds of evil, right? Because you'll begin to use people in order to be able to gain money. Because you've placed as a value money in your heart that that actually it was never meant to reside. Money's meant to reside in your hand. It's not meant to reside in your heart. And so when you love money more than people, that leads to all different kinds of evil. But when you love money more than you love God, you'll find yourself worshipping and deifying money. And that's easy to do because our culture deifies wealth. But when you love money more than you love your children, right? Here's the point. Money was never designed for our heart. Money is designed for our hands. Henry Ford, the famous inventor, said this. He said, money doesn't change a man. It merely unmasks them. If a man is naturally selfish or arrogant or greedy, then money brings that out. That's all. And so money is not the root of all evil, but the love of money. But when money begins to take the place in our heart that's reserved for God, when money begins to take the place in our heart that's actually reserved for expressing love towards others, then all of a sudden it becomes quite a dangerous thing and it can lead to all different kinds of evil. Here's the truth. If you'll keep money out of your heart, then God will make sure it's in your pocket because he knows that you won't be tempted beyond a measure that you're able to withstand. Here's the cost of this myth. This myth has caused good and godly people to reject money-making opportunities, believing that money is evil, when actually money's not. It's neither good nor bad. What money is, is means. Here's the second myth. Myth number two, a rich person has less chance of salvation than a camel has of squeezing through the eye of a needle. Matthew 19, verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it'll be difficult for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go into the kingdom of heaven. It's really important, right, in the Bible to get context. So so when Jesus makes this statement, he's actually making it after an interaction with a young man that the Bible describes as the rich young ruler. This young man is a person of influence. He's rich and he's young. Some people will take their whole lifetime to be able to 
amass a fortune, but for this young man, he had wealth from a young age. Not only that, he had influence. He was a ruler. He would be one of the people who would sit at the city gate right, and preside over matters for that particular region. And so the Bible describes this rich young ruler who, who comes to Jesus, right? And when he comes to Jesus, he says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, well, you know the, the commandments, you know, do not cheat, do not steal, you know, honor your father and mother. And, and the minute Jesus says it, this young man sort of puts his shoulders back and says, oh, Jesus, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. And then the Bible says this, notice this, the Bible says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. That's what the Bible says. Imagine that just for a moment, that this young man has come to Jesus to ask the question, what have I got to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks him in the eyes and he loves him. And he says to him, hey, hey, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. This is important because the rich young ruler is the only person that Jesus ever told to divest all of his possessions. He didn't say that to anybody else, only to the rich young ruler, right? If giving up your possessions was a prerequisite for Jesus, then Jesus would have told everyone to do that. But of course, Jesus didn't tell everyone to do that. He only told this young man to do that. Why? Because Jesus actually wasn't interested in what the rich young ruler had. Jesus was actually interested in what had the rich young ruler. Jesus was not addressing the issue of the man having money. Jesus was addressing the issue for the rich young ruler that his money had him. And that's incredibly important. I mentioned in the very start of this series that, that money makes an excellent servant, but it makes a terrible master. And that's true. That, that money as a servant is an excellent thing, but money as a master is a terrible tyrant. How do you tell the difference? Well, when you tell your money where to go, you're the master. But when your money tells you where to go, it's the master. Let me make that more practical. When you can freely, right, be able to tell your money, all right, you, you're, you're the 10th, you go tithe, local storehouse. And you, your portion, you're going on the kids' school fees and you're going on the home loan and you're going into the savings account and you're being invested and you're telling your money where it needs to be able to go, you've got mastery over it. But if by contrast, your money tells you where to go, I'd really love to be able to be in church this weekend, but I need to be able to work because I've extended myself financially and now I've got all these commitments that I can't fulfill. And so now I'm having to do things I actually don't want to be able to do, but because I'm so stretched financially, now I've got to be able to do them. You see, there's a difference, right? That when you're able to freely tell your money where to be able to go, you've got mastery over it. But when you've placed yourself in a position where your money now tells you where to go, even against your own will, now it's got mastery over you. That's what I mean when I say, that money makes an excellent servant, but it makes a terrible master when you get that relationship wrong. Which brings us back to the rich young ruler. That Jesus is not interested in what the rich young ruler has. Jesus is interested in what has the rich young ruler. But because after this interaction, the Bible says that, that at this, the young man's face fell because he had great wealth. That the Bible could rightly say that actually the rich young ruler went his own way because he had great wealth, because that's evidently what happened. That Jesus actually says to him, go sell all the stuff you've got, give it to the poor, then come follow me. He makes the same call to this young guy as he makes to the disciples. And yet, where they followed him, this young guy walks away. Why? Not because he has wealth, but because his wealth has him. 
But what Jesus is ultimately doing is actually helping this guy out. Because at some point, the rubber's going to meet the road in his life. And if he's relying on his finance to be his security blanket, if he's relying on his, on his position of wealth to be the thing that gives him self-worth, if he's relying on his money to be able to save him, then at some point when push comes to shove, he'll hold on to the thing that's most dear to him. And Jesus realized, if, if you're going to follow me, that, then it's got to be your whole heart. And it's not about whether or not you've got money, it's whether or not that money's got you. Immediately after this, the disciples say to Jesus, they say, well, well then who can be saved? And Jesus' reply is, with God, all things are possible. And the very next thing that happens is that Peter says, well, Jesus, what about us? Like, we gave up everything to come and follow you. Like, like literally everything. We dropped everything we're doing to follow you. And Jesus says, oh, I'll tell you the truth. That you, anyone who's given up stuff, relationships and, and um, possessions and land, and I'll give you a hundred times in this life and the one that's to come. If I'm one of the disciples, I'm pulling Jesus aside and saying, hey, I know you're the son of God, but can I help you with the altar call, right? Like if you just said that to the rich young ruler, like he's a smart guy, like anything you give up, then, then, then I'll return it to you in this life and in the one that's to come. But then of course he would, he would very freely go, well, yeah, sure, like I can do that. Because, but Jesus doesn't say that. Why? Because it's actually not about the stuff. It's actually about the rich young ruler's heart. That God wants us to rely on him and use money, not rely on money and use him. And so whether or not you trust in money has actually very little to do with how much money you have. It actually has to do with the position that money has in your own life. Here's the cost of this myth. This myth has caused successful business people to feel condemned for their success and has stopped yet others from pursuing the business gift on their life. It's really quiet today. Myth number three. If God wants me to prosper, he'll give it to me without me asking for it. If God wants me to prosper, he'll give it to me without me asking for it. And the truth is, that's actually not logical. It also doesn't fit with the testimony of Scripture. We ask for salvation. We ask for forgiveness. We ask for healing. And so asking is actually important because asking acknowledges God as our source, right? That we don't make it happen ourselves, but actually we acknowledge that God is our source. That, that in asking, we're saying we know who our provider is. This is the lie, right? That this myth is rooted in the idea that God doesn't view our natural needs as important. And it's easy to find ourselves slipping into this myth that God doesn't really care. God cares about the really spiritual things, but he doesn't care about the little things. But we find this even when it comes to prayer, right? We find it really easy, don't we, to be able to pray for healing. But we find it harder to pray for some things that are a little more personal than that. But we find it easy to pray for the things that are like really big. But then sometimes struggle to pray for the things that are really small. Because we think, well, how could God be interested in those things? But actually, God is interested in all of it. God's interested in us. God's so interested in you that he knows the number of hairs on your head. And for some of you, that's a few less than others, but, but God's interested. God's so interested. And so the, the, the lie of this myth is that, is that God doesn't really view our natural needs as being important. 
Billy Graham put it this way. He says, tell me what you think about money. And I'll tell you what you think about God. For these two are closely related. A man's heart is closer to his wallet than anything else. The truth is God does care. God, God does care about our natural needs. And God does want us to be able to prosper. And this is important, right? Because he's our loving heavenly father. He's not a distant tyrant. Are you following me? What father doesn't want the best for his kids? What father wouldn't give the shirt off his own back so that his kids could, right? And so when we come to God realizing that he's our loving heavenly father, of course God wants us to be able to prosper. He's not a tyrant trapped in an ivory tower somewhere. No, no, he's a God who's interested in us in every detail and facet of our lives. John chapter uh, 3 John chapter 2 says this, Beloved, I wish above all things that you would prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. Here's the truth. God wants you to prosper. But prosperity looks different on all of us. This is important because prosperity has almost become a bit of a dirty word. And that, quite frankly, is a reaction. And not a healthy one, like most reactions, because you end up throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Because prosperity is actually a word that belongs to God. Beloved, I wish above all things that you would prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. That prosperity is a word that actually belongs to God, that God does want you and I to be able to prosper, as any loving heavenly father would. But what we've got to remember is that prosperity doesn't look the same on everyone. Because here's what prosperity doesn't mean. Prosperity is not like Oprah Winfrey, right? Where you get a car and you get a car and you get a car and you, right? Prosperity doesn't mean that every single one of us are driving a Mercedes. Because prosperity looks different on all of us. But God does want you to prosper. Not prosper compared to your neighbor, but prosper compared to yourself. From where you were, when you think of where you were when God first met you. When you think of how God's provided in your life, and maybe that story looks different to other people, but it will have this thread in common, God showing himself faithful and good and true. Don't you have stories like that? And so prosperity, God does want us to prosper, but prosperity looks different on each of us. It doesn't mean that everyone drives a Mercedes, but it also is not rooted in the idea of a give-to-get philosophy. Because that also brings a distaste. And that's sometimes where the word prosperity has almost been lost in church because it's been tied to this idea of you give to get. And that's important to also realize that that's not what the Bible talks about when it comes to prosperity. That getting is never the motivation of a giver. But that's not to throw away the whole idea. Since God actually does want us to be able to prosper. But this is one that's hard to get right in our own hearts because our culture is geared for financial comparison. And it's also geared towards deifying wealth. And so let me say two things that are true here. You will never be satisfied while you're looking at what others have. Come on, that's true, isn't it? You'll never be satisfied but while you're looking at what others have. But this is also true. You'll never prosper while you believe that God actually wants you to struggle. But of course, he's our loving heavenly father. Of course, he wants good things for us. Here's the cost of this myth. This myth has caused God's people to live far below what God actually intended for them. Here's myth number four. Owning possessions equals materialism. 
That's a myth. Come on, maybe these are starting to touch some of the myths that we've maybe even believed in our own lives, right? This idea that owning possessions equals materialism. Materialism is not the mere possession of things. Materialism is the undisciplined appetite that causes a person to be governed and controlled by the desire for more. Let me say that again. Materialism is not the mere possession of things. What materialism is, is the undisciplined appetite that causes a person to be governed and controlled by desire for more. That's important because in a culture that deifies wealth, more is always better. I think it was Rockefeller, right, who at the time when he was asked this question, how much money is enough, actually accounted for 1% of America's economy, Um, owned 90% of like oil and gas in America at that time, right, 100 years ago. And, And he was asked by a reporter how much money is enough. And he famously said just a little bit more, right? And so materialism is that undisciplined appetite that causes a person to be governed and controlled by that desire for more. Again, right, we're talking about things that begin to make their way into our heart. There's nothing wrong with having money when it's in your hand, but there's something wrong with having money when it gets into your heart. And so if owning possessions was a problem, then what about those who are in Scripture who had great possessions? Think about it. The Bible is filled with people who are rich, like obnoxiously wealthy. Think about Abraham. Abraham is mentioned as having animals and silver and gold and wealth in Genesis chapter 13, about having exceeding wealth. In fact, he was so wealthy that he kept on accumulating wealth to the point where the land where him and his nephew Lot were couldn't actually accommodate both of them. When you're running out of parcels of land because you just got too much stuff, right? And so, and so they actually have to separate and go their separate ways in Genesis chapter 13 because the land that they had couldn't support both of them. God's blessing was so upon Abraham's life that, that, that he had incredible wealth. Think about Isaac. Isaac is Abraham's son, and he's endowed with great wealth too. And so Isaac is actually carrying on, leading a prosperous life, even during times of famine. There's lots of, there's lots of moments in Scripture where even in the midst of famine or, or economic downturn, it was like God's hand was on his people. Is that what the psalmist said, that I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor their children begging for bread? Why? Because God's economy is much bigger and broader than our own, right? And so Isaac was able to cultivate and harvest, the Bible says, a hundred times more than other people. Genesis chapter 26 and verse 12 tells us that. That when Isaac is harvesting, he's harvesting a hundred times more than what everybody else is able to harvest. What is that? That's God's blessing upon his life. In fact, his prosperity caused the Philistines to be so envious of him that he eventually had to flee his home country in Genesis 26 because God had blessed him so much. Abraham and Isaac were incredibly rich. Think about Job. Job, he was rich. The Bible tells us in in Job chapter 1 that Job was a righteous man. But the Bible also tells us that because of his enormous material wealth, he was the most distinguished man in the East. Just two verses later. That Job demonstrates right in his life an extreme dedication to God, even in spite of very difficult personal circumstances. But he maintained his faith, and in the face of so many obstacles in his life, Job was rewarded by God with riches that surpassed even what he had previously had. Come on, possessions aren't a problem in our hand. They become a problem when they come into our heart. Uh, Think about Solomon. Solomon is one of those biblical figures who is more readily connected with wealth 
than almost anyone else. According to 2 Chronicles chapter 9, and verse 20, Solomon possessed so much gold that silver was practically worthless in his lifetime. You're doing pretty well, right? When silver is like that, that's worthless. We can throw that stuff out. We've got so much gold already, right? Think about David. That the Psalms contains detailed account of David's wealth. That David had given the modern-day equivalent of US $21 billion towards the construction of God's temple. He handed that on to Solomon for the construction of God's temple. You've got to have a fair bit of financial backing to be able to give away $21 billion by modern equivalent, right? David was doing well for himself, for a little shepherd boy out of the back streets of nowhere, right? What about Joseph? Come on, Joseph rose to a position of second in command in Egypt by the time he's 30 years of age. And the dream that he interprets, which is a gift that God's given to him, becomes the economic plan that saves an entire nation and enables him to amass a huge personal fortune. Here's the point. Having things is not a problem. But things having us, that's a problem. Right? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 and 18. Notice what, what Paul encourages Timothy. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. I want you to notice this, that Paul gives specific instructions to Timothy, who's leading this church. And he gives specific instructions, but he never condemns. He just gives specific instructions. Notice exactly what he says. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth. Timothy, when you're pastoring the church, just remind people Don't let money get in their heart. It's okay for them to have it. It's not okay for their money to have them. Don't let it come in their head, which is so uncertain. Put their hope in God. He's the one who richly provides. Because if you put your hope in money, then your faith will follow the stock market. But if you put your faith in God, he's way more consistent. If you put your faith in the property market, then, then every time it's up and down, your confidence will be up and down. But don't put your faith in that. That's uncertain. Put your faith in God. That's certain. And so Paul gives specific instruction, but he never condemns. Here's the cost of this myth. That wealthy people have, and many times, been unfairly judged by religious people. And consequently, many prosper. Here's the fifth one, as Steve comes back to play keys for us this morning. This is the fifth and final one. Myth number five, when Christian leaders talk about money, all they want is my money. Come on, we've all thought it. When Christian leaders talk about money, all they want is my money. I really hope that over the course of these three Sundays that we've been talking about finance and God's principles for stewardship, I hope that you've heard my heart in this. That actually, money is one of those really common subjects in the Bible because the Bible speaks to things that happen in our everyday We started this very series talking about, you know, if we look at faith or prayer, it's close to 500 verses on on those subjects in the Bible. But when it comes to money and possessions, there's more than 2,000 verses. Do you know, even in trying to put this together and confining it to three weeks, part of the difficulty has been, what do you leave out? Because the Bible has so much to say. Two-thirds of Jesus' parables deal with money and possessions. Why? 
Because those were examples that made sense to people because that's in our everyday life. That was true 2,000 years ago. It's true today. And, and so as a result of that, money is one of those common subjects in the Bible. And so we ought to have a biblical perspective on that. I think that's so important for us. It's so important because you're not going to hear that on the news. Comsec will not give you a biblical perspective on finance. Right? You won't read it in a newspaper. But, but it's important for us to be reminded that when the RBA is talking about its interest rate rises, that we serve a God that's outside of our economy. That's important for our hearts to be reminded of that. That we serve a God who is good. That we, are, we serve a God who is able. Right? And whilst God might not want our money, God does want our hearts. And those two are intimately connected. It's impossible to say I honor God, but I can't put him first financially. It's impossible to say my faith is in God as my provider, but then not to acknowledge it in some other way. Right? They say in leadership, if you follow the money, you find the culture. Because ultimately, whether you say you value this or value that or whatever, ultimately, when you follow the trail, that's where you find out what really matters, where the rubber really hits the road. And here's the big part of this. God doesn't need our money, but he does want our heart. Billy Graham, who's been my reference point for just about every quote in this series, right? He said this. He said, men go through three conversions. First, the conversion of their head. Then the conversion of their heart. And finally, the conversion of their hip pocket. It's kind of a bit like that, isn't it? That's pretty true. Here's the cost of this myth. The church leaders have been afraid to speak about finance for fear of criticism or of people leaving the church. And the result is widespread ignorance on biblical teaching about finance and the church being weakened by its passive position on finances. As we come to the end of this series, I did want to say this, and I wrote it in this week's newsletter, but I wanted to say thank you for you as a church making this easy for me as your pastor to be able to teach on this. I don't take that lightly. That's not lost on me. In fact, over the last three weeks, perhaps even more than any other sermons I've preached this year, people have come up and so encouraged what we've been talking about and what we've been teaching. That I've got text messages and people have come up after services and said thank you, that people have re-listened to sermons and they've shared them with friends and people have talked about it in their connect group. Do you know, this series, we've only had two Sundays, this will be the third one, it'll go up on Tuesday this week. But you know we've had over 400 people download this series, right, in the last couple of weeks that we've been doing it. And so as your pastor, can I just say thank you because you've made this very easy for me. I talk to other pastors. I love our church. But thank you for making this easy for me to be able to share and begin to bring some wisdom from the Bible so that we begin to lay a foundation for God's principles when it comes to financial stewardship. But we've been talking about money, but ultimately we've been talking about our hearts too, right? Because you can't talk about one and it not naturally lead to talking about the other. And so as we finish this series, I want to ask us just one question. There's lots of questions we could ask. Maybe there's some questions you've got, even for your own time with God and your own Bible study. I'd encourage you, and we've mentioned this before, but if there's been stuff that's stuck out to you from this series, one of the things that I've utilized um, that's helped 
um, in putting this together has been this book by Robert Morris, The Blessed Life. And, and you can grab this from any good bookstore. You can grab it from Kurong. You, you can do that. I'd encourage you to do that, especially if something's really stood out to you. But I want to leave you with this final question, and that's this. What, you, what could you give to God that would impress him? You ever had to buy a present for somebody who just has everything? How difficult is that? How frustrating are those people, right? What could you give to God that would impress him? We're giving God a million dollars that impress him. We're giving God a hundred billion dollars. The answer is, there's no material possession. There's no financial thing you can give to God that he doesn't already say it's mine. It's all his. There's no amount of gold. You say, God, we've got all this gold for you. He's like, yes, I put it there. It's mine. Right? There's no stash of diamonds in the world. The truth is there's no material possession or financial thing that we could give to God that would ever impress him because it all belongs to him anyway. The only thing you can give to God that isn't already his is you. God's not interested in that. God's interested in this. God's interested in your whole heart, in your whole life, in your whole person. The only thing you can give to God that isn't already His is you. Would you stand to your feet this morning? We're going to pray. Lord, I thank you this morning for every single person who's in this room. God, greatly loved by you. And Holy Spirit, I pray whether we're in this room today or whether we're listening to this message right now on a podcast, Holy Spirit, we just invite you into this moment. God, that you'd speak to our hearts. That God, that what we've listened to and God, what we've explored in terms of biblical principles, that God would be sealed in our heart. Holy Spirit, that you bring it back to our remembrance even this week. That God, we would live lives that glorify and honor you as our good and great heavenly father. That acknowledging that every good thing that finds its way into our lives, God, it comes from you. And that's broader than just finance. That's way bigger than just that. But God, it does include our finances too. That God, we want to honor you and live lives that bring glory to you as the giver in our lives. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said, amen. Thank you once again for joining us. Feel free to contact us on our Facebook, our website, and jump on our Instagram at mcc.church. Also, make sure to rate and review as well as share. Finally, from all the team at MCC, have a blessed day. And until next time, bless you.